Hi, and thank you for tuning in this week to the Making Our Way podcast. On this episode, Austin tries to mail his kids, Christy sends us a Valentine gift, and we talk to Stuart Little's favorite sculptor, Jeff DeBoer. So come along as we take this deep dive. Hey guys, how are we doing tonight? Hey, what's happening? Not too much. Good to see y'all again. Mr. Austin, what you been up to, brother? So my mailbox fell victim to either, I can't, I don't know if it was a snowplow or a combine, one or the two. I think it was street youths. Could have been, could have been the old, uh, you know, razzle dazzle baseball bat treatment. Um, But on the road that I live on, there's a lot of big equipment comes down this road. So, and you know, not just me, but other big pieces (laughs) of equipment and the, (laughs) the, uh, my mailbox gets whacked all the time. So this time I was, I I was was like, I'm going to build something that makes, so I can make the thing survive, man. Like build it almost like, you know, armor it up a little bit. And so what I actually came up with was, uh, a pipe inside of a pipe swivel mechanism that was real fast to make. I just welded it up together. And um, so if the mailbox gets, if it gets hit, it'll spin in place. And then I put a little set screw so I can kind of adjust like, so there's just the wind won't move it out of the way. I've seen a bunch of systems where there's like a big arm and then it swings if it gets hit and comes back, but where mine's located, there's a farmer's field directly behind it. And I don't have enough room to do that because the combine has to be able to turn right there. And I lost a few mailboxes when I first moved in here because I didn't know that the combine comes right there all the time. So finally, after he destroyed two of my mailboxes, he asked me to move it (laughs) to a safer location. And so, uh, so far it's working great. I actually made two. I made one for my dad's play, uh, his mailbox and one for mine. His has been hit several times since then already already wow already yeah and it's uh it's saved it it's completely saved it like mailbox is just spun sideways he's like oh yeah i got hit again today (laughs) so (laughs) anyways that's it works good um and also i upgraded to like the biggest mailbox that the postmaster has approved it's big enough that my four-year-old can fit inside of it. <laughs> yeah. When you opened up your mailbox, your son was not what I expected to see inside the mailbox. I'm sure he was like giddy laughing whenever you suggested that, or was it his idea? He was like, I think I can fit in there. I was like, let's see if you can fit in there. <laughs> you should set up a system of those. So like people can rent them. And when they have to do kid exchange, like divorced parents. So they don't have to see each other and fight. You just go to the McDonald's, you put your kid in the mailbox, you lock it. The other parent picks the kid up. They have the key to unlock the mailbox and it would probably stop a lot of fights and domestic issues. That's a good idea. Future That's an interest. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. So Christy, what have you been up to? Well, um, not much myself. So I do want to shout out uh, Jacob and Jade from Other Dog Design because they did an absolutely fantastic job on making the, the um, tumblers that I surprised you guys with for yep. Valentine's Day. Um, and this is the first time I've ever had a tumbler that's like mine, mine. So I, I, I ordered myself one besides um, giving you guys I'm assuming you guys were kind of surprised. When oh, I was so surprised. And not only was I surprised, like I heard the mail lady come. It must have been on Friday because I was home mm-hmm. or Saturday. Mm-hmm. It was Saturday. And I was waiting on my CNC was coming Saturday. So every time the ring went off, I ran up front and I saw this box and I was like, 
what is this? And uh, I, I wasn't expecting anything. I wasn't expecting anything USPS. And then I saw the other dog designs stamp on it. And I was like, Oh, what did Jacob sneak off and send me? And then when I saw the mug and it had the Mr. T Valentine card, and it was from the Colonel. And I was like, Oh, this is so good or whatever. So I posted straight on Instagram. Like I was so excited. And then Jacob sends me a message. Uh, I like how Austin kept his on the download to not ruin your surprise. And you just say F it and drop it on Instagram. And so <laughs> I guess I appreciate Austin keeping the facade up for a day until I could get mine in. And then Christy, I don't think yours came till today or Monday. Uh, right. Mine yeah. arrived Monday. Yeah. So I, I ruined the, it, but you ordered them. So it's not really ruining it. Yeah. I had the, the, uh, shipping number for each of us. And so I knew kind of when everybody was coming, but it was kind of funny because each of you direct messaged me asking if the other one got it. So, and I should have, I should have just said, well, no, it was only for you. I should have made, <laughs> made you each feel special. Well, I but, didn't uh, want to post if he didn't have I them. Know. And I assumed we all yeah. got them. Well, I thought maybe because I had done the glasses for Marvin, if it was some kind of, mm -hmm. but you paid for those. Yes. So I was like, well, there's no quid pro quo there. And I was like, well, I did. Uh, so anyway, I just thought some scenarios yeah. where, you know, nobody likes Austin. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, and you guys have both. I mean, you guys have both shipped me stuff or sold me things at discounted rates and and stuff. So I'm like, I, I need to do something for you guys. So uh, I had suggested to to uh, Jacob to put like some big smoochy lip stickers or big hearts all over the outside of the package. Um, but we didn't go that route. He was the one that came up with, with the cards, the, that he had done inside, which were, God, those were just perfect. And the one that he sent me was, um, to the Colonel from Jacob and Jade. I love it when a plan comes together, which of course oh, is so the line from the Colonel from the A team. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I definitely wanted to uh, shout them out for, I mean, these are fantastic tumblers. They, you know, I, I'm, I'm just super tickled. So, so that was really the highlight of my week. This is a highlight of my Valentine's day. That's for sure. Cause I, I don't really like, you know, we don't, yeah, we don't do anything out. either. Yeah. Yeah. And so when, I, when I opened it up and I just started busting out laughing and my wife's like, what's going on? And I was like, you got to fucking see this. <laughs> and I showed it to her. She was like, that is so good. Yeah. So I love it. I love it. So Dean, what have you been up to? So I, I've got a lot and I, I'm, I'm going to focus in on, on one thing. And it's, you know, that tale as old as time going to a store because they say they have something online and then they don't have what you need. So mm. I had some logistical things happen, but bottom line, I'm not getting the Harvey dust processor anymore. Um, I don't know if, if you've ever had your feelings hurt and your heart broke, but I just went to an emotional place that I couldn't be rectified. And so I canceled that order. Um, meanwhile, I've rearranged my entire shop. And so I go to start moving stuff back to where it was. And I realized maybe I could do some kind of hybrid where I leave some of the stuff that was moved and take advantage of this new space. Some of which was 62 inches along a wall that is now vacant. And Ooh, so nice. I go on the internet and I was just looking for a table because I was like, I'll put this new CNC here. And Home Depot has this Husky table with an adjustable crank top. You can raise and lower it with a crank. And none of that mattered to me. What mattered was it was 62 inches wide. And I know you go, why don't you just build something? My shop is in a wreck. I, can't, I have nowhere to build anything because stuff is everywhere. So I'm just going to go buy this table. Well, the only place that it was in stock was at the Home Depot at Bear Creek down Highway 6. Now, if you're not from Houston, 
I drove past four Home Depots to get to this Home Depot where it was in stock. I went online. They say they have it. I'm like, okay, I'm drive past my main store. I'm gonna drive past the secondary store, drive past this store that I would never stop at unless I was on this end of town and keep going and then get to a Home Depot that I didn't know where I was getting off at. And if your business didn't have a 10 foot metal fence around it, you were closed because you'd been robbed too many times. And this Home Depot was not where I needed to be. So I go inside and I'm looking around. And of course, they do not have this table. So I get dejected. I go back in my truck. I look again. It says it's in stock. And then I realized I was only looking at the black table. They also had a white table and I didn't care what color it was. And they said they had the white table at the Home Depot right by my house. So I drive all the way back in and I go into this Home Depot and they don't have the table. So this extremely helpful woman pulls up her little machine and she's like, oh no, I know it says limited stock online, but that's just how they do it when it's under a certain count. There's zero here. There's zero, you know, 20 mile radius. There's no, none of this table. None of the, she looked at every skew I gave her. She was super helpful. We went in the back. We looked in the garden center and the overhead stuff. They didn't have it. So I'm going to leave. And she's like, well, did you look at the tool chest? Cause there's a tool chest at 62 inches that might fit what you need. And she's right for $900. You could buy a Husky tool chest that was 62 inches wide. Well, I didn't need a $900 table, but they did have another one that was a little less than that. That was 60 inches wide. And it's a really nice tool chest and it weighs 265 pounds. And so I bring it out in the parking lot and I stare at it for about 10 minutes to figure out how I'm going to get this in my SUV. And this nice gentleman walks up and he and I work through a language barrier to communicate the path to get this thing loaded. And then I came home and my wife helped me unload it. And I told her her only responsibility was just don't let it fall on me. I'll get it out. I'll lift all, (laughs) I'm going to do my best Austin and I'm going to lift all 265 pounds out of the truck. Just don't let it fall on me. And she did about a 50% effort on that. And, uh, but we finally got it out the truck and I got it rolled in (laughs) back here and it fits perfect. And so when I watched the Super Bowl, I was moving toolboxes around. I actually got I like how things are shaping up for sure. And I, I just yeah, got to figure out what to do with this dust collector now. I think a toolbox for the CNC is a way better option because that's what I ran into was like all the bits and bobs that go with this. Where are you going to put it? If it's just a table, you know, my X carve, so. I got in 2018, maybe 2017, 2018, somewhere in there. And all the bits and everything, all the hold downs are in a shoebox that I have to pull out the closet every time I need to grab one. And yeah. I built a drawer to put in and I never put the slides and just never put the drawer in. So the first thing I did was I opened the drawer and I put all the bits for the X carve in that drawer. And then uh, I put the new CNC on top of the table. That was the whole thing was I needed to do. Okay. So the, the mills 20 inches wide, the 3d printer, I have a 17 inches wide and I have two of them. So that's 54 inches with no spacing in between. So a 52 inch table or toolbox wasn't going to cut it. And they had, they had a 16, 52 inch tables, but I, I wanted 54 or greater and the more, the better. And so I, I think what I ended up with is going to be really awesome. Now I just can't move houses because I have so many toolboxes. Now, did you know that if you see a, uh, like at Home Depot, a tool chest or a piece of equipment that's on the floor that might have a dent or a scratch or something, you can ask for a discount and they will give you one. So I do know this because my wood lathe is on top of a toolbox. You know, everybody builds them on, builds tables for them and stands. Well, I'm like, why not a toolbox? I can put all the bits and bullshit with it. 
So I bought, they make a Husky makes an industrial line where this is a three or one inch thick wood top, but it's wrapped in steel. And so I can bolt it down. It's heavy enough to hold the vibration. It's just a midi lathe. It's worked perfect. And they had one at my local that was a floor model that didn't have keys or liners. And so I went and complained. It was like, look, you don't have liners. You don't have keys. I want $200 off. And, and we met at like 150 or something. And then I brought it home. And whenever we actually opened up and looked, the keys were inside and the floor liners had slid behind the drawers. So <laughs> it all worked slid, out. The slid behind the drawers least. or that's where you put it. Look, I'm wink, an wink. honest, honest person. I would never do something like that. <laughs> so I got a great hack for you guys too, that this works for Home Depot, but, uh, and I'm not sure if all Home Depots use the same color, but at my Home Depot, per, uh, purple spray painted line across it is a 75% off board. They have them in the back corner. It's like all the boards that get really warped and all that kind of stuff, but you can actually walk right down to the paint. I'll get a purple can and mark down whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> so this week we're joined with Jeff DeBoer. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Well, it's my pleasure, really. So if you would, maybe just, I, I tell you what, let me just start out from the, from the get-go. Hands down, you are the guest that I am the most excited for the entire podcast of guests that we've had. I have been sending your work to everybody. And it's, it's everybody, the first thing they say is they're like, wow. So if you could, maybe just give us a little backstory, like an elevator pitch, who you are, what you do. And, um, you know, just, just, just lay it on us. Okay. Well, I think the easiest thing to say, I'm planning on having an exhibition someday and it's not going to have a fancy title. It's going to be called armor for cats, rats, and mice. It'd be nice to be that clear. I think that pretty much says it all. People say, well, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm an artist. They think painter. I say, no sculptor, maybe. Uh, when I, when they find out that my day job is, being, I guess, the, the funniest way to describe myself is maybe the world's first and only uh, museum quality mouse armorer in the history of mankind. That might be an appropriate thing. Right. Sounds a little egotistical, but but it's sadly true as much as it's bizarre. <laughs> so th that you'd be building custom suits of armor for people uh, and in a way that that's actually about having a relationship with each person. So the mice that I build often has custom elements that I would, what's your story? So every piece I make is original and it's kind of inspired by the world of museums more so maybe than the art galleries. So when I was a kid growing up, I, I loved the artifacts and museums and I always had these big questions. So how and why was that thing made? How did it manage to survive? How did it get curated or found and then end up in a showcase in a museum for me as a kid to run into? And then the other question is, why am I so excited about it? And I think what's interesting about mouse armor is specifically is that on many levels, like to a child, it might be kind of a toy. But even at a very young age, children seem to recognize armor. So is there something you know, deep about that? Of course, when you're 12 years old, it's like science fiction cool or something like that. And then as a young adult, maybe it's it's just really neat. And then as a real adult, maybe it's something you'd like to have. And then later on in life, maybe some of the more sophisticated, maybe artistic conceptual things you might say is an art or well, is a stuffy old art curator. Maybe there's something there, too. So I, it's one of the few things I think you'll find in the world. I'm very lucky that I've 
found such an efficient thing. It's kind of like a fusion between fashion, craft, sculpture, design, jewelry. Like it's one of those one objects that I rarely, rarely come across in all my experiences that kind of touches on so many levels with people. Um, and then, you know, like myself, I being inspired by artifacts and museums, I kind of wanted to make stuff like that. And that's what turned me on right from childhood, my whole life, to kind of want to do this kind of stuff. And so I think it's kind of funny that now I'm at a point where my work is, I think just like my wife says, Jeff, after 36 years, you're starting to get good at this. What's fun about the work is that I think that it's going to end up in museums for real. And that sort of fulfills this incredible cycle. And when we talk about maker culture, what's really fun, and I, this has sort of happened in the last two years, and I know if you've been following, is I've kind of got this opportunity to do these little 60 second moments in the studio where I stick to just 60 seconds, do it in one take and try to demonstrate or explain something. And I think what's interesting, again, even like this podcast is not only am I making an artifact, but I'm leaving behind a digital memory of my days in my studio. And then a podcast like this is leaving another digital artifact again in another way. So you know, I don't know if we ever, if we had such a thing as Instagram in the days of Leonardo da Vinci, who knows what kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. Or who he would have inspired. That would have been pretty neat. Yeah. It's, it's kind of this really weird meta experience for me because I'm an amateur historian on one level. And I like, I really like making stuff. I really like teaching, but at the same time, you feel like you're working on something much bigger than yourself. You're part of something much bigger than yourself. Um, so I, I suspect I have one of the best jobs in the world. Maybe, um, I certainly love what I do and I get to work for some really nice people. Um, you know, beyond that, we can talk about anything else, but that's, I guess that's my short, very long introduction of. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have a question for you. When, after you, you meet the people for the first time and you tell them that you're an artist and then walk down the sculpture and then you really describe what you do. What's what's the reaction that you get from, you know, the average person that you're talking to on day to day? I think it's interesting because because I think if you, if you take two things that people understand and you put them together and then you show them to them in a new way, it there's like a double take. People understand the word armor. People understand the word mouse. They're two perfectly clear words. But when you put them together, say I built armor for mice. You can just see their brains like. They're trying to visualize this and uh, like just it, it, almost uniformly, it just it just one of the few things I've ever come across. You could say you do and people are just stunned that you even could make a living doing it. They're even more stunned. It's fun. One of the first questions I had was why cats and mice? Is it strictly because of their size or does it play into their classic feud that have gone on throughout the centuries? Well, I, I think a little bit of that, it, I think it's a perfect analogy for kind of two really different species that which would be in some sort of almost disproportionate conflict. <laughs> you know, like, like I think that the, I think of the mouse is taking on the cat is kind of like taking on a dragon. And I, I think maybe the cat's taking on the mice as a form of taking on some kind of infestation or, you know, an invasion. So for both, it's a different experience. Like people say, well, do you want to do armor for snakes or birds or dogs or horses or whatever? And, and actually, it's kind of nice to just stick to two things, you know, cats and mice. 
And the reason is uh, both the scale are both really nice. So cats are those much bigger, more involved projects and mice. You can compress the, the detail into this really small thing. Cause as a trained goldsmith, we love small detail. And I think goldsmiths, for an example, I like to make a ring, but it's not really about the ring. It's about making something really neat metal. Mm-hmm. Like they get to, you know, whatever they want to do, they can, deck, they can shape that metal and make something really beautiful to look at. I don't, I haven't thought of myself as actually making a suit of armor in a long time. I'm just so excited about making all these little parts and details. And I obviously must be like, I don't know if I'm OCD. I, I think I'm just OC, I'm <laughs> obsessive, but I'm not sure if it's a disorder. <laughs> That's, I, I'm, I love your Instagram because you break down how many pieces are actually in these suits of armor, which to me was just absolutely insane. And then I started looking at all the holes and how many rivets and how many, I mean, it is phenomenal how much work you're putting into these. And so, and at, at different scales, so you're doing them at the mouse scale and then at the cat scale, what, what techniques do you use for scale? Like there has to be some, you know, pro tips that you have. If somebody wants to try working in a scale like this, how do you do that? How do you, you know, work at the two different scales or, or shrink down, you know, a human style armor onto a mouse? Yeah. That's a great question. I, I think that by one of the tips is try to work with things as large as they can be for as long as they can be. <laughs> so if you're working on a tiny part, maybe don't saw off that last bit, a t- a piece of metal, but use it as a handle. So you can work 90% of that piece before you nip off that tiny, that last little bit, because holding a little part, it's pain. Right. You know? uh, there, there are some tools, there are like a lot of jewelry tools, there are small, tiny little clamps and things like that that make that sort of thing possible. The funniest thing is that my work really improved when my eyesight started to go. Cause I had to start wearing magnifying glasses and mm. suddenly everything was three times the size of my head. Mm. And holy mackerel. You know, the first time I put on magnifying glasses, I looked at my work and said, this is really not that good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a, there's an old joke, you know, everything looks good at 10 feet. Well, we're trying to get to a, like we're talking about small stuff. What we're trying to do sometimes, I think, is think about, uh, again, I always laugh and think about the curator pulling over, open a drawer in some dusty basement of a museum one day and running across my work. And that's when it gets funny because is this real? But you kind of don't want to let somebody down at that moment. I think you're leaving behind details to tell a story later on in life, like playing the long game. So when you're dealing with small stuff, it's actually pretty big when you get right down there. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. Like even when you're polishing, yeah, you know, people say, you know, this is how you hold a piece and this is how you hold it against the wheel. But if you actually think about what the physics are that are going on down there and you try to achieve a certain thing, you would actually spontaneously have a technique, right? You're trying to achieve something. The, the technique doesn't create uh, an effect. Trying to get an effect causes it. Does that make sense? It's kind of backwards. Right. You know, one of my great mentors said, you know, every, if you make a mistake consistently three times in a row, you just develop the new technique. <laughs> so, <laughs> then also the nice thing about small things is that, you know, a couple of, of, of strokes with your Emery paper or scotch bright, it's pretty much finished. Bigger pieces, you know, the big, the big secret with big pieces, if it ain't scratched, don't scratch it. You know, if it's not dented, don't dent it. 
Um, and a lot of shaping metal, people don't understand that they think it's all about hitting the metal, but where you don't hit it is actually just as important as where you do hit it. So a lot of people tend to overwork their metal, push it too far and have to bring it back, distort it. Um, the other thing is when you're dealing with things like armor pattern making is a mega science, just the prediction of how materials are going to move. Some materials stretch, some materials shrink, some materials stay stable, some, some materials will distort. Um, and it, that's one of those things that kind of takes time, you know, to, to understand what's happening. Yeah. So you've said a few times, you know, you've referenced this museum style quality that you have to your pieces and, and that's kind of your goal. And I was kind of curious when it comes to the research and determining styles and authenticity, obviously you have no true historical material <laughs> for these, these specifics. So yeah. what's that process like for you when you take what is historical and then how do you manipulate it to uh, maybe work off this caricature of, you know, mice and cats? Yeah, another great question. I there, there's a balancing act because you can try to be hyper his, hyper authentic or historical, but the reality is, is you're the first person doing something. You can get away with it. You can do anything you want because everything I make, whether it's historically referenced or a fantasy piece, is completely authentic and new. Right. That, that's the advantage. If I was doing replica, which is like reproducing the perfect example, is if you want to have a perfect replica of the Mona Lisa, you have to paint stroke for paint stroke, make it absolutely identical. That's a huge, that'd be a phenomenal human accomplishment. But what it's not is what you get if you ask Picasso to give his version of a Mona Lisa. So with the armor, I'm not worried. I'm not even, I, the word replica never enters my mind. I'm making something new that's about today. And I can refer to history, but I don't, I'm not married to it in any way, or I'm not re re restricted by it. So there's beautiful, you just see so many beautiful things that people have made in the past. I mean, if you look at the great armor that came out of the Italian Renaissance, the German Negruli stuff, like I got a long way to go to catch up to those guys. And if you look at the, some of the most amazing pieces that are made by the Japanese armors of the day, it's just so creative and so wild and out there. There are just no rules. So sometimes it's nice to bring all that together. It's not about history. It's about being inspired by that history. So if you had to choose one of those eras or um, origins of history, what, which one is the one that you're most drawn to? Uh, just a sucker for the Asian armor. Um, mostly because they, they kind of had these crazy ornamentation ideas. Um, you can just do some wild things with Japanese armor. I, but I, I don't know if you've seen the photograph of the Celtic samurai cat that I made for a lady bringing two cultures together the celtic samurai samurai cat and it's just it's just kind of just a i don't know it's just an orgy of design because you can bring these things together but just again the japanese armor is beautiful also because in japanese culture they didn't mind putting in details that only the armorer knew existed which is kind of a lovely thing it's an interesting sentiment but then again you go back and look at some of the great european armor i mean some of these people would have spent you know, several manus on, on some of these parts, you know, that we don't have that kind of industry anymore or that kind of history or knowledge like they had at the time. So it's going to be pretty hard to reproduce some of the work that was done at that time. It's mind blowing what human beings can make metal do.
You know, it, and, uh, and in any culture, in any era, you will always find examples of things that are just super, super sexy. And the nice thing about, again, about maybe doing a suit of mouse armor, if I'm doing people armor, I'm lucky if I can make a good suit every three years. With mouse armor, I can explore an entire idea and maybe go through 24 ideas a year. So the pace at which I can sort of play with and explore these different things is way, again, way more efficient with mice. You know, a suit of cat armor can take between four and 500 hours to make one. Wow. To get it right. You know. Do you have any uh, contemporaries that you can send drawings or photographs of this work to to get feedback on? You know, I'm an armor expert, and yes, this looks like it's something down that vein. <laughs> well, again, on Instagram, the beauty is get some of these most amazing Japanese armors in Japan contacting me. It's kind of like, what the hell? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that's really exciting because they are pretty excited that I'm doing something. And again, it's kind of like like if you have a Japanese traditional armor contacting you it's kind of an interesting thing too because we talk about authenticity like you could in the united states of america make an absolutely perfect samurai sword using all the traditional materials you could dress up japanese you can do anything you want and it'll be uh, pound for pound the best samurai sword ever made but it'll never be a real samurai sword because hey you're not japanese and you're not in japan it's like saying single malt scottish whiskey has to come from scotland so even though I'm making samurai armor, I think from their perspective, they see I'm not trying to make samurai armor. I'm doing something with samurai armor they find exciting, which is different. There, there's another artist in Japan, uh, Tetsuya Noguchi, and he does these tiny little samurai figurines. And they're just like me. They, in, in a way, because he'll have them posing like carrying a shopping bag or riding a children's toy. Uh, so he's taken the idea of the samurai as a as an analogy and made these beautiful because there's a real culture for tiny figurines in Japan. But his figurines are just so incredible and beautiful and, and the detail. It's all samurai armor and micro scale. So and he's also done cat armor. So, like, OK, we're, you know, we got to get to know each other. There, there have been some people who actually made cat and mouse armor over the years. Some of them maybe because they saw my work, but others, some of them have spontaneously done it too. So it's not just my idea. Curious about you and mentioned um, the clients that you work with. Are they normally just collectors of, of unique pieces or, or what type of uh, clientele and, and how do they get a hold of you or commission a piece? Right. I, I have to, I mean, what a great spectrum of people who will buy my work. Uh, a guy who works at a gas station comes and actually made like 10 payments over two years to buy a piece. That's like the most amazing thing ever. Um, this is the funniest thing. I think the one thing that probably most people would have in common who buy my work, they probably all subscribe to national geographic or something. Oh yeah. You know, um, they're all different walks of life and for all different kinds of reasons. The, the nicest ones are like the cat armor pieces. When somebody's asking me to make a suit of armor in memory of a cat that's passed away nice. and you can take the time to listen to them and take the stories and ideas and create designs around telling the cat story and then building uh, like a, a reliquary urn in the base of the, mm. of the armor. So they can put the cat's ashes in there. 
And like, like it triggers, it triggers a great soundbite because like, if you think, and I love to compare myself to the best in the world, but and through history, the wine would do that. But the, the, like the guys that made Tutankhamun's death mask, it's exactly the same thing. They had a really good patron that really was going to underwrite this thing. They came from a history of knowledge and passed down abilities. And I'm pretty sure on the day before the officials came to pick up the mask to take it to the tomb, they invited all their friends over for a beer. Mm-hmm. And they just hung around and rolled around in it for a minute before it gets boxed up and goes. And that happens all the time in my studio. There's just that last moment of with the friends and have a quick look, put in this crate and we're never going to see it again. So I'm doing that all the time. And I, and I still think, I wonder if those guys were thinking somebody in that room was thinking the same thing. I don't think there's such a thing as a museum, but someday somebody's going to crack open this tomb and it's going to fry somebody's noodle. <laughs> and wouldn't it be fun if, I could reach a point with my work that maybe it'll something, one of my pieces might travel down one of those journeys some days and maybe fry somebody's noodle someday. I think that would be great. You know? Um, so again, you feel like you feel like you're part of history when you're doing that. And I think that the people who are commissioning the work are making it possible for me to do that. So where a lot of people might say, I got to go to work because I need a paycheck. If you turn it around, I need a paycheck so I can go to work. And this isn't cheap to do. It takes a lot of time and, you know, shops are expensive and tools are expensive. So, you know, I, I but, but, I, and I'm not even asking for too much. I wish I was Banksy and I could get $400,000 every time I spray paint something. <laughs> so when, when we're somewhere in this, in this sort of craft world, art world, and also just kind of like working by the hour, which I kind of like to do, that you end up making things are as cost effectively as you can but you also want the kind of financial support to go for as long as you can to make the best thing you can. And the, the last thing I'll just say on that was that people say, Oh, Jeff, you're so patient, you know, like, like, no, oh, you're so virtuous or something like that. I, I think it's great that we might think of patience as a virtue. I like, again, to turn that around too and say, you know what, what if patience was a luxury item? What if we viewed it as having the opportunity to take the time? That's a completely different mindset. And wouldn't it be nice if you could just love something to death? You'd hate to make something during you're having a bad day and have that kind of energy into something. So, you know, when, when the people who tend to support my work, it's a big act of faith because well, it's not cheap. It's going to take a long time. Um, and if that's okay, then we've got a deal. And I will give you the best I can you know, every day and it'll be my best attempt. And it seems as the years go by, things are getting better, but they seem to be taking longer and longer. <laughs> <laughs> Where all have your pieces been shipped to? Oh, like how I, far? Literally all over the world. Yeah. Okay. My work is all over the world. Yeah. Which is kind of nice. It's nice thing to say, Hey, yeah. <laughs> so basically what I'm gathering from you is that you really enjoy the process of building a legacy that you're leaving behind a collection. And I think one of the most important things when you're doing that is material selection. You're trying to choose things that will stand the test of time. Um, so could you talk about a little bit about that? Like what materials you use, uh, which ones are your favorite, like that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, you know, my favorite all time material of all time is probably steel. But the most durable, probably the long lasting one we're going to make a suit of mouse armor out of is probably going to be nickel. Uh, 
funny thing is that if you make something out of 24 karat gold, the material is so valuable, somebody's chances are somebody's going to melt it down at some point in time. If you take one of my suits of mouse armor to the scrapyard, you're going to get about five cents. So there's no value in destroying the object. We talk about durability. It, it has no material value whatsoever. So, so things like nickel will never rust or fall apart in that, in that sense. They're also extremely durable. So I used to joke that everything I make comes with an, ex, an exclusive thousand-year warranty. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if something goes wrong in 500 years, we'll deal with it. But I, I, everything was made to last. I think things with fabric, you're going to run into a problem at some point. Like that's why the samurai armor, you go through this painstaking process of polishing inside of every hole, rounding both sides so that you don't cut the fabric over time. And when you've got thousands of holes, like I said, I, I, my one video, I could have 10,000 micro operations <laughs> to prepare the plates so that they won't wear out. <laughs> so on that side, I hate samurai armor. Uh, but things like materials like leather, they can slowly dry out and degrade over time too. But maybe in their own way, that kind of makes their own charm too. I, there, there's something nice about the objects actually aging. Silver mice tarnish. And it's kind of like the Antiques Roadshow thing. If you polish the tarnish off, it might lose its value because it's built up this incredible patina. I fantasize about the Antiques Roadshow all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe since you kind of led into that, can you kind of talk to us about the patina process that you like the force patina process that you do on it? Well, for samurai armor, we are doing an oxide. So I don't know if you've ever, you know, guns are dark blue because he's sort of controlled rusting to prevent rusting. Oxide right. can be created on materials in different ways with heat and with chemicals. And like, likewise, once an oxide is established on a surface metal, it stabilizes it. So some of those great finishes that I have on like my samurai armor, I get that black finish. Maybe on, on real samurai armor, that would be achieved with like lacquer, but I'm doing it with an oxide. And it's only because if I paint it with lacquer, it looks like it's made out of plastic. So I kind of don't want that. It's, it's kind of about this honest metal work. And then rather than putting a clear lacquer on it again, which makes it look like plastic, uh, wax, like a, like a furniture wax I have, is a hot waxing process stabilizes it but it still looks like metal when you're done that's the beauty of it so you i because it's an honest metal work you just want to maintain the metal look if you do over things to preserve it you could actually ruin it because lacquer if it gets scratched now what you got to strip the lacquer off and destroy the finish yeah wax just a little more wax a little bit of buff and you're back so it's also about maintenance so pieces that tend to have this sort of brushed oxide wax finish are really stable and I hate polishing things now. Like, like, you know, polish is just, you know, it's, it's just a horrible finish. Like it's, this is the most horrible finish. It doesn't photograph. It doesn't keep well. Yeah. You can sell it and it looks good for 10 seconds. You know, I saw you have a video on Instagram of the finishing process. And when you were melting the wax, you have a torch that you're going mm. over to. Have you ever had any just uh-oh moments where that torch got something a little too hot and maybe discolored or, or set something up in flames? You know, I, it's funny. I, of course. <laughs> 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 but, 
<laughs> I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of special language we say for that. We don't use in interviews. I gotcha. But I love the, I've got the, oh my God, this is totally fucked up box of stuff downstairs. Um, it's things that are, that are, that you spend so much time on. You can't, you don't have the heart to throw it away, but they're completely useless. Right. Yeah. So if I have an exhibition someday, I'm just going to cover a table in failure for people to see what that looks like. You know, there's, there's a, there's a real beauty to it. (laughs) I have a great idea for that box of failures. You should stage a mouse battleground where it looks like there was a, a massive army was dismembered, all these different pieces everywhere and, and do that in the, the, the battleground of failure. <laughs> well, I, you know, just to, just to quickly touch on that. So we, one has to move forward in their art. Someday I'm going to do an exhibition. I actually want to create like a, uh, an, an archeological site where you're actually digging up about, mm. right. Nice. And that would be cool. And document it and do a proper archeological documentary of that, of that dig uh, and have that as, as like a book. And the, 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 the reason is, is just that, Making this stuff is great, but I think that people also want you to tell stories. So that that's sort of in the future for me yet. If I live long enough, I'll get to do that. Well, that kind of keyed one of the questions I had. You know, most of your pieces are framed in that museum uh, style where it's the suit on some kind of stand. But do you have any relationship with taxidermists where you, you have pieces that have been put on taxidermied animals? Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Although it's not an altogether bad idea. Um, the only reason I, I don't do it is because the, the sort of that hollow suit of armor you would see in a museum, your imagination will make mm-hmm. it do a million things more than if you stick a mouse in it will ever do. Yeah. Some scruffy mouse. Right? True. Like, like, you know, I can put, I have put armor on cats. I can tell you it's nothing like you would think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. It's not a very good experience for the cat. It does not fill in your fantasies about a cat wearing a suit of armor. You know, it's just not a, it's a miserable experience for the cat. All right. So one of the fantasy questions I had was with your technology, how many levels up the animal kingdom chain do you think cats and mice are transported? Like at what, what is a mouse in your suit of armor able to take down now? Are they running (laughs) dogs off or are we, you know, some small farm animals? (laughs) I, well, again, with the mouse, I think for me, it's always been this like little guy taking on the big world. Mm -hmm. And even as an artist, it's a metaphor for me Mm -hmm. in a weird way. Being a craft person taking on the art world is the same as the mouse taking on the cat. The cat is the art world to me. So we have levels going up. That's that's I know I haven't answered your question, but no, no, that's fine. You don't have to answer these questions. (laughs) Then. um, So then I had a question about do you find are all your pieces hero pieces or do you have some you construct that you're like, this is the villain. This is the black knight. That's interesting. Uh, that's an interesting thing. Cause I don't make weapons mm-hmm. and I don't make armor for bad people. Mm-hmm. Right. There's enough bad people in the world. Like they, the, what somebody said, the bad guys aren't taking Sundays off. So we got to start working weekends or something like that. <laughs> well, speaking of bad people and Canadians, you know, you do share a, a testy border with the country that the three of us inhabit. And I'm just curious, <laughs> is this a plot for some kind of uprising of mystem? Well, I don't know what your guys' knowledge is on the War of 1812, but I'll tell you, we Canadians came down there and kicked your asses. Yeah, with a bunch of armored up cats. Yeah, Hannibal. Yeah, Hannibal of the Great White North. The War of 1812, and we can pick them up and raid your country anytime we want. With anytime you want, we still have the original arsenal, and we're good to go. 
It's funny because <laughs> when I was when I first came across your page, and I, I saw the, the the mouse armor, and I was like, "It's awesome!" It's the the workmanship is what drew me because I do machinist stuff. So as soon as I saw it, I was like, "This is so cool!" And um, I uh, and then I scrolled down further, and I saw the first, one of the first cat armor that I came across, and I was thinking to myself, "There is not an animal on earth." that I would want to shove into a suit of armor less than a cat, like the <laughs> actual physical trying to do that. Like I'm going to get so fucked up by this cat <laughs> trying to get him in this armor, which made well, me love it even more. You know, maybe the nice thing about a podcast, I could tell you a really quick story about the Japanese game show I was on. Oh, let's oh. hear it. So world's most unusual occupations. And, uh, you get the call from their talent agent and it's like, so you make armor for cats? Yes. You want to be on Japanese game show? Oh, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so priceless. So flew a crew to Canada, to Calgary, and they hired an actress and a stunt cat. They filmed me making armor all day long. At the end of the sequence, they had to put, have me put the cat in armor for their camera crew. And the directors in my living room, my parents' living room, would be sitting on a couch smoking a cigarette with a camera rolling. They're like, go for it. And I tried to get the armor on the cat. And the, this cat was supposedly the world's most docile cat, but it was like a size 14 cat. And all I had was size eight armor. Yeah. <laughs> I know that the animal rights people aren't going to like this, but it didn't last very long. But I snapped that breastplate on the cat's chest could hear it exhale but i could not hear an inhale and then things went bad in front of the camera and they got a lot of footage of cat turning on me uh and it's armored now and it's then we armored got off and okay. uh, and everything was fine after that but i can guarantee you there was some blood in that scene um so anyway they went back to japan and decided the footage wasn't great so they had me ship the armor to japan at the end and they found a size eight cat and they had some footage of the cat wearing it, but funny enough, the scene at the end, the cat was in a rubber room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's terrifying. That's, there you go. So I did have a question. We're getting to see you in your workshop. I'm sure all the listeners can appreciate the view we have. And I see all these dies behind you and different tools. And I know Austin likes to frequent uh, the recently widowed and divorced trying to find good deals on tools. So I'm just wondering, you know, as a, a metal smith, where you find your tools and, and what are some of your go-to tools? Yeah. Uh, great go-to tool for me is just, is my straight foot shear. Uh, just being able to shear up pieces of metal quickly and smoothly and straight and flat when I need it is a blessing because not everything is going to be twisted. Uh, go-to tool for sure is going to be my jeweler saw. It is like to a violin, you know, it's kind of like playing your violin, learning how to play it, how to use a saw properly. Uh, it just, it's just so versatile. The my Certainly my big go-to tools is going to be things at this point like die grinders and welding tools because I need to make forms that I can shape the armor over. And then there's a whole series of processes like clay and things like that that are plastic that you can uh, work with and change and manipulate. Mm -hmm. Like when, I, when I'm designing a suit of mouse armor, there's a drawing, a concept drawing, but then I sculpt it in clay just like you might design a car and I can keep making changes and if, and then I can take a pattern from that clay model and make the first part and stick it on the clay model and if it's wrong I can throw that one away and start over again does that make sense mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. slowly control the composition of the thing I'm building until I actually get something that looks like a mouse like just having flexible materials that you can play with being able to play a lot 
tools that before you commit, <laughs> you know, uh, are really fun. Um, you know, those, those sorts of things. The, I think that the, the layout of your bench is really important. It's comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, the ergonomics of, you know, we were, I think we were, we had that big question about you. What's your, what are the three most important tools? Can I answer that now? Sure. Sure. Um, again, because I'm building a shop, but the funny thing is your shop is the first in my book, the most important tool. Is it set up right? Or everything at the right height? Is there, is there exactly as much space you're going to need? You know, not, are you heating space you're never going to use? Are you, you know, like first from, again, from a sort of this classic efficiency freak, is this, is this a really comfortable environment? Like, is it a, is it warm? Is it got nice colors? Does it have nice sound? Is it, is it a place you want to be? It doesn't have to be ugly and smelly and all these other things. Is it just a place? And then, then the next tools that are important, most important, funny enough, though, on, on the, on a nature show, they're talking about how animals can use tools, but they don't know how to make tools to make tools. Mm. So that creating a tool to make another tool is a very human thing. And then making tools from those tools that make even more tools is sort of like, how do you make the first lathe, right? Start with a rudimentary lathe and make the parts for a, in the, a slightly more advanced lathe and keep making lathes until you can have a lathe that will be precise enough to make a precision. And the same thing with sort of the tools in my shop, it just isn't a mouse armors or us store to go to. <laughs> I, I've looked. Um, and so the, the, actually the fun part then is innovation, right? It's like, Oh, I need a tool. And I'm trying to solve this problem. I, I have this funny feeling if I, like I, I call my, my, the tools in my shop, the, uh, they all come from this thing called the butt ugly tool company. <laughs> Some of these tools aren't very, aren't very pretty, but they really do the job. And I just, you know, you'd think that a guy who loves fussing over a suit of armor and making that nice would make all his tools nice. But quite often, as long as it doesn't have sharp edges and it works like a dream, <laughs> I don't care how it looks. And I, there's something kind of charming about that too. Like you kind of get used to it. You know, I had, I still have the original wooden stump that I got from my friend's dad in 1988 when I was setting up a garage, my parents or setting up a studio, in my parents' garage. Uh, every suit of cat mouse armor I've ever made since 1988 has been made on this one piece of wood and I'm wow. never going to replace it. Yeah. You know, like, and it is, you know, why would you, you know, every little dent and shape has been created over time and you just know where everything is. Like you don't even have to think about it. Plus, well, that's a great question. You know, I, it's just funny because you're dealing with something every day that's new or weird and that's really fun. So yeah, making tools, that's the best. Mm-hmm. Have, have you had an opportunity to do any collaborations with other artists or other sculptors? Cause your area is so unique. Um, is, have you had an opportunity to, to work with others on certain oh, projects? I, I, I come, I'm big on mentoring emerging artists. So I've been very fortunate that there's an, I, cause my shop is actually too big. Cause I originally ha- used to have three full-time employees too. Oh, wow. uh, that's a long story, but there's enough space in my shop for me to give residencies to artists that I like and share and work with. And uh, uh, here in Canada, we have our indigenous artists. And one of my favorite students is a guy by the name of uh, Andrew Holloway. He's Stony Dakota. And he and I have done a couple of, 
he was my student, but now he, he's, we've, we've decided we'll try working together for the next 20 years and just see how it works out. Um, <laughs> but what's exciting about him is that I want he and I to work together to create an authentic Stony Nakoda warrior mouse. So we get this for like my first guest artist to work with me and create something between the two of us. And I, I'm actually quite excited about exploring that relationship with potential other artists in the future that maybe we would do some kind of cat or mouse project together in the future, because you're going to create you, you, like the, like I got it. I know how to make a mouse. What I don't know how to make is a, is a, is an authentic stony Nakoda warrior mouse. And Andrew really loves making, wants to know how to make my mice. So I'm going to let him walk off with the ability to do that. And I hope he might make someone on his own. Because then, then we know we could start with this and, and then maybe some of that legacy stuff can continue. Wouldn't that be lovely? Um, Wouldn't be. So, yeah, I'm big on collaboration and, and, you know, it's not just the little stuff, but I do some large publics art too. Cause I, I didn't want to be just the mouse armor guy. Um, <laughs> but then with COVID, I discovered being just the mouse armor guy is actually a pretty good thing. And it's nice to come back to it. You know? Um, so yeah, collaborations. Big. I was curious, do you have a count on how many suits you've made since 1986? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got another, I've got another question. So, <laughs> you know, I think I've done, I've done a really disservice to myself by maybe not keeping entirely accurate records. They're, they're going to be in the hundreds for sure. I know that, that I have kept some count of just the basic projects numbers per year. I've completed 3000 projects so far. Wow. And that represents some 56,000 artifacts in the world now. Nice. Wow. So pretty much one of the most prolific makers out there when I was, when I was hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm doing a little bit of research. I saw that your dad was a uh, sheet metal worker. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And so was he still alive when you were working in the, in your mom's garage? Or? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He so, only died two years ago. Oh, okay. So you have to spend a lot of time with him. Um, what's, what, what was that like? So like he's professional sheet metal blue collar guy. Yeah. And then his son goes off to art school. Yeah. Comes home yeah. and says, dad, I'm making mice armor. Yeah, so I got a long way. I got home. I still smell like steel and carborundum at night. And uh, my hands are just as dirty and cut up as his. Um, what a lovely thing. You don't realize or think about that you kind of grew up with it. And and I, my joke is all the other kids got an instrument, learned how to play an instrument. My dad gave me a ball peen hammer. Mm. And maybe that's a bit of poverty, but that was also the right thing for me. And you know, we just, my dad just, my dad was a funny guy. Cause he, he just, he never parked a car in his garage. We just made stuff. I've, I've been making as long as I can remember, you know, I have no memory of being anything or doing anything else. And my parents are really simple people. They just thrilled that I might be going to higher education, like an art college, you know, anything. Um, and because my dad is such a simple blue collar guy, it was just such simple wisdom about just having a work ethic and going to work and, you know, not being, try not to be too high on yourself about anything, you know, 
uh, it's, it's funny where art world, we, we do have to have enough ego to be an artist, but sometimes also humble enough at the same time. It's a real balancing thing. So I think my, my, my parents, my father for sure helped give me kind of a grounding and a fearlessness with material that he had. So everything in our house is made out of metal, everything. Right. <laughs> like you stub your toe on our dining room or our coffee table. It's broken. Right. <laughs> Just no, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's the way it worked in our house. Yeah. I love the man. And the last thing was that he would come to my studio at the end and he was always picking through all my materials and stealing everything. <laughs> <laughs> So Jeff, in, I saw in 2014, you did an interview where you said that the folks from the Tower of London contacted you about buying a piece. Did they ever, did they buy a piece from you? Well, it's a funny history because I get a lot of possibilities. I've had Leeds, I've had the Glasgow Museum, and I don't think I should say because it really curse things, but I had an interview from National Geographic too. Okay. And at this point, though those, all those people were serious and, and believed that my work was authentic. For various reasons, either the board of directors voted against it or whatever it was, just haven't quite placed those pieces yet or gotten those critical reviews that I would like to get. I'm pretty sure if I got an article in National Geographic, the the level of, of authenticity again and just the sort of the stamp that that would mean would be huge. But I'm not going to wait for that. I, I think that that I need to. You know, like my, my mouse armor collection that I have now, funny enough, I have to keep an example of everyone. Isn't that horrible? Because I need it as a reference. <laughs> it's just oh, terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that collection isn't going to go to any of my undeserving siblings that I don't like. It's going to go to a museum. And, and I think some of the best and most important tools should go. So again, it's sort of this idea of legacy that wouldn't it be nice, maybe someday an experimental archaeologist might discover it and actually learn how to reproduce one of my pieces. And does it not come back to life maybe at that point or something? And uh, so that's neat. Those are neat things. I, I love like, the, you know, I love it when these really important, really well-educated curators and directors of museums really give me the time of day. I think that's just huge honor. Um, and the, the other weird thing, just to sort of touch that, is that for the last 20 years, I've been so busy, I haven't exhibited. And the, I think the point of the new studio is that that'll be a whole new world. I won't have any overhead. And I'm going to spend the next five to 10 years working towards actually touring a show. I want to put an exhibition together and actually get it out of this country and like come your way and have an exhibition. I think it'll be lovely to just do a nice tight little show so people could actually experience this stuff in person that mm -hmm. and as many places around the world as I can, um, in my lifetime, you know, I, so I think people would be lovely to let people see it. I I'm pretty sure the museums will come, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but for now it's okay. We're just, we're still getting good at it. You know, I had one more kind of off the wall question that came up when I was looking through the photos, you have this one cat armor that looks like a dragon dragon scales yeah. or something. Yeah. And I was thinking this time frame was, uh, you know, game of Thrones was real big. Did you see any yeah. spike in the, uh, demand for your work when those kind of shows come on? You do, uh, you get a, you know, the, 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 it's always fun, but you get a lot of inquiries and a lot of people are really excited and really want the work. And I love that. And, but you know, a lot of, a lot of people really have no idea how expensive this might be. So, um, 
it's, that that often so it's hard to try to explain to people consistently that you know I, I don't know how to explain it but I don't know what you charge you know you have to charge by the hour it takes this many hours but but you get some great even though you may not sell a piece that's not the point but you get to meet really interesting people and people write you really interesting things and they say interesting things and sometimes they teach you something about your work you didn't expect which is really nice you know you you Here's here's a funny thing is I've been working on this stuff for 36 years now and I just have this funny feeling I still haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> and for years I thought that I was making mouse armor and it turns out in the end I think mouse armor has been making me. All right, so I have one more question I want to ask. Oh, and this one we'll see where it goes. So when I first saw your page, I sent it to at least 20 of my associates friends and I was like, check, all I wrote was check this out. And I just sent it to him. And it was probably about 40% wrote back. And they're like, that's phenomenal. But why? Why? And I said, my response to them was, I don't give a fuck why. I love that it exists. And I told him, I said, and my definition is of this guy is that he's a true artist because in my feeling, he would do this even if he wasn't getting paid to do it. Right. That's in my opinion, the definition of a true artist is somebody who is driven to do the work that they do no matter what they're going to do it. If they get paid, if they don't get paid, if they do it as a hobby, that's a true artist. Right. So wow. what, what is your why? There doesn't need to be one. You're absolutely right. The fact that they're asking why is why. It's meant right. to create a question, not give you an answer. It's not from a story. There's no story. There's, there's no, you know, it's not like you can go, like you can go to a science fiction convention and you can see somebody wearing an Iron Man suit. We all know why and where. That makes it easy. There's no author behind any story behind this work. This stuff has come from nowhere. And maybe that mystery opens up infinite stories for people rather than any specific one. That's why I wouldn't want to have a taxidermy mouse because it limits it all of a sudden. I, I think it's just more conceptual and a little deeper and a little bit more challenging to come from nowhere. I, I think that's really nice. And I think you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. There, there doesn't need to be a why. And uh, for me, hundred percent, it's not about money. It's about, about having resources. So money is just by studio and time. That's it. Right. Not rich. Not rich. Not, don't care. doesn't matter. All that matters is that I have enough resources to do this till they find me dead at my bench. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. My goal. Right? Awesome. I, I'm going to probably paint a little target on my bench where I know that'll be the last thing I ever see and where they'll find my head one after me. You know, like every day until that's the last thing I see, that might not be so bad. You know? I love it. <laughs> I don't think it gets any better than that. I think that is, that is uh, fantastic. Walk us out of here. Tell people where they can find you. Well, you know, funny thing is I sort of gave up on the website. I've been experimenting just with this whole social media thing for now. So it's Instagram, uh, Twitter. I think it's Twitter, Jeff DeBoer9, and Instagram, it's Jeff DeBoer Sculpture, and uh, Facebook, Jeff DeBoer Sculpture, I think. Mm -hmm. I think if anybody wants to find me, 
just Google mouse armor. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it just, it, you'll get, you'll get there. It's been out there in the internet for so long. That's the other thing is so efficient that the really, there isn't anybody else on the planet right now who would come up above me. Um, again, it's just sort of the joy of being the first and only <laughs> at anything. Uh, you know, you kind of won the lottery of an idea and, and you want to be humble enough to do your best you can with it. Um, so, so for now, social media, I might get a website going again here because I think I need to explain some stuff uh, consistently, but I've been really enjoying Instagram right now. I think that's, and, and now that I've discovered how to load up reels, it's going to get even better. <laughs> oh, good. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. I do like all your video content where you explain processes, just show up close details. The videos are really captivating. Oh, thank you. And I, it's been fun because my patrons follow along. They're like, oh, that's my mouse. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So thanks so much for joining us, man. This has been awesome. Oh, that's Absolutely. been really fun. It's really nice. It's nice when anybody gives me the time of day. <laughs> really appreciate it. All right, thanks Jeff. Take care, on. buddy. Yeah, okay. You know, going through Jeff's interview kind of makes me wonder and think about like themes. I mean, he had a, he has such a, a beautiful theme and a, and a, a such a whimsical nature to his um, his projects. I'm just kind of curious. What do you guys have that makes you think of, you know, something that you focus on a theme or or, or has real direction? So, Austin, I'm kind of curious. What do you what do you got? I mean, I naturally would go back to my time as a surfboard builder. We would do theme boards. This was, you know, when I was in that business, it was during the Orange County Choppers time, which was like all their theme bike builds and all that kind of stuff. So people would always come to me and have like a really like, oh, I want it to look like a fighter jet or I want it to look like, you know, Spider-Man's board. So it's got webs all over it and stuff like that. So I've done a ton of themed and and pretty whimsical stuff that, you know, wouldn't, you wouldn't see on like a normal surfboard. Um, probably my favorite one we did, it was supposed to look like a P40 Warhawk, which if you guys um, are familiar, they're like the, the big, you know, shark mouth on it. It's kind of, um, you know, very well known. And so we, we did a, a blend of that and like a P51 Mustang with the big white black star you know, just red, red, black, and white. It was really cool. And I actually, um, I sunk a bullet into the tail block. So it's like a, like a, it was cast resin. So we had a bullet in the tail block and it just, it came out so awesome. And it, it made it into a bunch of magazines and all kinds of stuff. So that, that was one of my cool. favorite ones we, we did. What about you, Dean? You got something? Well, on, you know, one thing that it's always held me back, I was always more of a bulky builder. I mean, we don't have, a lot of the fine machinery and tooling to start, you know, resawing and stuff. Now I'm not talking about my waist, Austin. Quit smirking. Okay. I just was um, trying to clarify. Yeah. No, we're kind of all bulky builders yeah. here. Let's be real. But, but you know, anyway. just more building with dimensional type things and building in that fashion. But one thing he said, you know, whenever he he talked about how he accidentally fell into mice and cat armor and it became this niche that I just I, I thought immediately about. I never wanted to make stamps. I wanted to make myself a stamp, you know, that's all. And it just kind of fell into it. And where I'm from, you know, a lot of the most successful people there 
have these niches that they just saw a something that needed to be filled, a void, just like our interview a few weeks ago with Ahanui boards. I mean, he didn't want to make boards for anyone else. He was making a mold for himself and he fell into this, this deal here. And it's just funny how, if you've got your eyes open and can recognize if you've got a problem, then chances are someone else has that similar problem. And if you can find solutions to your problem and then offer them up to others, there, there may be a market there. You never know. The other thing, just when he was getting into all the, the detail and stuff, I think about my mom and her stained glass. That's something, you know, I never, I never worked on at that scale. And to see, you know, I'll go in there and she'll have a piece of paper with 200 pieces numbered. Like, okay, I have to cut this piece of glass and it's an eighth by a quarter of an inch. And she's grinding this out to this certain shape. And then a number gets written on it and it goes back on the, the diagram until she's ready to start soldering. And I thought about the, um, this summer we made the sprinkler out of the copper pipe and we drilled holes. And so the whole thing was, we made this copper sprinkler so that she could make a stained glass bird that sits inside of that with some stained glass cattails and made this, you know, functional garden art. That's both a sprinkler and artistic. And, and just to be able to work at that level in this, and like he was saying, the stuff he was doing, it was just immediately what I thought of. Christy, what about you? I mean, what's your whimsy? Um, the one that kind of stands out for me was from a couple, or I guess a little a year and a half ago, uh, the Fools with Tools treasure trade. I had um, Isaac from Rusted Friends was the name I drew. And he's really into D&D, which is something I'm not familiar, really wasn't familiar with at all, but I did a little research. And so I made a dice tray. Um, he, uh, Isaac makes custom die for D and D beautiful pieces. He makes custom, custom, uh, figurines also. So I thought that was kind of something that complemented into what he did as well, as well as a hobby that he is really into. Um, so I, uh, I hand carved the D and D logo into a piece of leather and put that inside the, the dice tray. One side of the dice tray had slots for each of the die. Um, and then the other side was the flat to roll the die on. But I mean, that was, I had a very specific look that I wanted it to have, you know, kind of not that even it even remotely compares to what Jeff does in his detail on his metalwork. But, you know, he talks about he has specific ways of doing um, his techniques and wanting it to look a certain way, whether it is historical based on that type of armor for uh, that a person would wear or something more whimsical or more um, just something that he created. You know, I was going based on the logo but yet had my own, you know, details as I was choosing different, um, different stamps to use while I was, you know, putting the designs on it. So, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of a, a comparison to that, but, um, but yeah, that was a project that I really enjoyed and really stretched me beyond anything I'd done before. The longer I sit here, I just think about some of the guests we've had, you know, first I was thinking about when Chrissy mentioned Jeff by name. I was like, what's it with guys named Jeff and doing weird stuff? Um, and then that had me start thinking about other guests we've had. And I, I just have this great appreciation for guys like Jeff or like Kelsey Watson. I mean, that'll say 
mm-hmm. going to do this project. I'm going to make a fiddle out of aluminum. And it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if it takes six months or, you know, there's no just, I got to batch these out. Oh, I've got to sell these. I've got to sell 30 boards this month to pay my bills. I got to batch this stuff out. I've got another client lined up. They just want to make these things for themselves. And they, it takes however long it takes. And then they'll sell it if they can sell it. But that's not why they made it. He didn't make a suit of armor for a mouse because, you know, he, he had people lining up around the block to arm up for revolution. He made a suit of armor for a mouse because he was trying to practice his jewelry skills. And that was a focus. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, maybe one day I'll, I'll find something that I'm so interested in. I'll, I'll drop 200 hours to try to just make something really awesome. That's worth the attention. I think one other thing that kind of jumped out, lots of things jumped out during his interview, but, but um, the fact that it's okay to focus the time and put the time and energy into a project. My personality is I want to mark it off the list. I want to have my goal, my objective, get it started, get it done, move on. But talking to so many of the different makers that we have over this almost an entire year and Jeff today, you know, I need to step back and look at what I I need to step back and realize that it's okay to put this extra time, this extra energy, the extra planning in it, because my projects are not projects that I'm selling. These are projects like Jeff said too, he wants to stand the test of time. And that's kind of what I want with mine. Mine aren't necessarily going to be in museums, but I want it to be handed down from generation to generation. So I think, you know, those are things that just really jumped out at me during, during our conversation this evening. I think that's why there's so many Austin custom surfboards still out there is they're just so clunky and hard to deal with that they're not getting ridden and, and getting anywhere on them. So, you know, they've been able to stand the test of time. Yeah. Some people just like shit, but it's made durable, man. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this episode, please give us a review and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. So reach out to us on Instagram at Making Our Way Podcast. You can find all of our latest individual content on Instagram or YouTube. Austin is at a high caliber craftsman. Dean is at Dean underscore Duplantis. And I'm at Twisted Twine Woodworking. Thanks again, friends. Austin, how many followers do you have on Instagram on that account? Maybe like 800. Oh, well, see, then it's hard to compare a little bit. What's your most, you say? Like 3,500. Okay. You've got one with 100,000, don't you? How much does your, you've got a few that are up there, don't you, Christy? Yeah. Uh, 245 is my most. 245,000 using a chop saw the wrong way. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, and then I no, also that's what think I need to do. just start fucking doing crazy shit with yeah. my tools. Like, no, I I just start using my money. ass cheeks to lower the chop saw, see what kind of views I can get. I had 115,000 on gluing up your ornament. That's fucking crazy, man. Nothing I had 64,000 on using that. Uh, Is that at your that, house? One of your yeah, houses? It was my, my washing machine. <laughs> so, how crazy that the sirens were in Canada? Oh yeah, I was like, that's gotta be Dean's house. No, <laughs> Canada. <laughs>
Because <laughs> I thought it was my house, house too. I don't think it was my house. Off of like, I saw you listen because yeah, I'm like, so. I'm hearing it too, brother. Don't worry. That is definitely in Canada. It happened twice. Yeah. I'm going to have to do a yeah. disclaimer in Q3. Those sirens were not in Houston. <laughs> Contrary to belief. <laughs> Fucking Canadians love to bring up the War of 1812. <laughs> they fucking love it. I'm going to have to research that and just try to figure out. Oh, I, it's when they burned Washington, D.C. You know, the more reels that you do, this is me coming at you from a business perspective. <laughs> the more reels that you do and the more video footage that you have, you might want to think about starting to dump some of that on YouTube because YouTube is evergreen for at least for me. I make money on all my old videos, you know, and they just compound over the years. And so like every month I make a little bit more money 